Hi, I'm Logan Medish, host of the High Caliber History Podcast, and on this episode of the show, my guest has spent more than 30 years working in a variety of different aspects of the historic arms industry, uh, including having spent a lot of time on the Antiques Roadshow, and we're going to discuss some of the amazing finds he's seen there. We're also going to discuss guns owned by Henry VIII, and we'll even talk about his bird hunting experiences with a flintlock. It's going to be a good episode, and I know that you're going to enjoy it. And if you enjoy the content that you're finding on this podcast, a reminder that we are entirely viewer and listener supported, and so we'd appreciate you considering becoming a supporter on Patreon. There will be a link in the description below. All right, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the High Caliber History Podcast. My guest on the show today is Bill Harriman, and he has spent a career of more than 35 years as a consultant specializing in the examination and classification of firearms, ammunition, and related items. A list of positions he has both held in the past or currently holds includes the Director of Firearms for the British Association for Shooting and Conservation, a member of the Home Office Historic Firearms Reference Panel, Firearms and Military Specialist for the BBC's version of Antiques Roadshow. He's one of only seven honorary historic consultants to the Royal Armouries in Leeds, and he's the author of multiple book titles, including ones on the Mosin-Nagant and Arasaka rifles, with a fifth forthcoming title on bayonets, which will be due out on April 15th from Osprey Publishing. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Logan. It's great to see you all. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on. So we'll jump right into it. How did you get your interest in firearms history? Do you know what? I, I can't recall a time, even when I was a pretty small boy, when I wasn't interested. Okay. I, I, don't, know, I don't know where it came from, but I have a, a faint memory of being at my aunt's house and her French windows were open onto the patio. And behind one of the curtains, there was an old Birmingham Small Arms Company air gun, which was my dad's, which I've actually got. It's in the rack behind me, funnily enough. Cool. And that was that, that was being used to deal with rats on Auntie's lawn. And I thought, that really interests me. And <laughs> it, it, it appeared at the time that it was about six foot long. But uh, sure. I, 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 I've always been interested in them. And when I went away to school, I can remember taking four or five books on firearms, and I've still got a couple of them, and they're just about falling to pieces. So I was always interested. Okay, well, that's cool to have to have a, a lifelong interest, you know. And that's I think it's a, that way for for a lot of us who are arms enthusiasts. We get into stuff uh, generationally, you know, like you said, seeing the the old gun sitting there. Um, and that's, you know, I've, I've been into them all my life. My grandfather uh, got me into them at, at a young age, as, as listeners and, uh, to the show will have heard me talk about him before. Um, so so yeah, you, say, you, you, you say it's generational. If I tell you that my father did his level best to stop me being interested in them. Really? I can, I, I can only, only tell you that um, he, he was a complete failure. 
<laughs> well, you know, then, then we have something else in common there, too. My dad didn't try to stop my interest in guns, and neither did my mom, but neither of them had an interest in guns. So <laughs> we've got that generation jump there, too, in common, I guess. My, my, my father was an officer in the Royal Air Force in the Second World War, so he'd handled a lot of, um, of firearms. And sure. We, 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 we had a few around at home, but he wasn't that interested in them. But funnily enough, the interest, the, the moment that I, I said, I'm really interested in that, he said, no, no, you don't want to see that. I think he's probably frightened. I might shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, that's... He, he, was, he was also an engineer, and I suspect that probably some of my fairly limited ability to work on guns has come down genetically from that. <laughs> that's funny. So uh, I mentioned in the bio that you've uh, been on the BBC's version of Antiques Roadshow for uh, a number of years, and uh, I've I've spent my entire life watching uh, the American version, and and also have have dallied into watching episodes of the BBC version when I ran out of new episodes on the one here stateside. Um, a number of years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to a, a filming of of one of the roadshows here uh, when it came to Washington D.C. And that was really neat to get that kind of behind the scenes view of, of how the show works. Uh, but for someone who has spent so much time as, as a consultant with the roadshow, what's it like uh, working on the roadshow? And do you have any favorite pieces that have come through uh, through your tables there? So, certainly it's, um, it's hard work because you are plowing through a lot of stuff, which is not very consequential, shall we say. Yet, <laughs> yeah. Yet, you, you, I'm trying to be diplomatic, yet you cannot say to somebody, I don't see that, that's a load of rubbish, because they have probably been standing in a queue for two or three hours, and it's their day out. You've got to give them the very best experience that you can. Yeah. So while something might not be worth very much money or not very exciting, you need to tell them what it is, everything that you know about them, and um, make it enjoyable. Right. So, so that, that can be very wearing when you say we start at nine o'clock and we're normally done by about half past five or something like that. If you've, if you've had some of the, these great volume crowds that we've had, you know, you really feel sort of pressed in after a while. Sure. I have, I have to say that in, gosh, it's more than 35 years of doing it, I can only ever remember one really unpleasant and objectionable person. Well, that's good. <laughs> I, I, I think he had come thinking that having paid a lot of money for whatever it was he, he had brought, my, my mind um, slips as to, as to what it was, that when I told him it, A, wasn't what he thought it was, and B, he'd paid far too much for it, he got very, very aggressive. Yeah, yeah, that's... I th I a fool and his money are often separated, you know. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. And that's that's a shame. And and we see it here too, you know, guys they spend a ton of money on something, you know, a gun because someone told them it was something special or they didn't know anything about it and they were told it would be a good investment. You know, and that's yes. that's always yeah. always a shame. I always tell people, you know, or people get caught up in the story of the gun. I say, buy the gun, not the story, because the story could be absolute Indeed. bunk. <laughs> Indeed. I, I spend my life myth-busting. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So have, have there been any really cool pieces that stick out in your mind? I, th- I think the most important piece that I, I can be sure was important was a Charles Lancaster four-barreled officer's they're known as howder pistols and yeah. it was in um i think it was in either 445 or it might have been a 476 it, it, it was a four barrel thing and it would fire four shots and they were preferred quite often because revolvers used to jam mm-hmm. and so with this you you know you had four shots sure this this was made i think in the very early 1880s it was very finely engraved all over and then on top of the engraving, there was a gold plating, a wash of rather rather a subtle matte gold, not like okay. a sort of gold plated um, tap that uh, a rich person might have on a yacht. And then the <laughs> then 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 the grips were made from ivory, and it was presented in its original wooden case, which was made from a rare wood, which. I'm told was coromandel wood, and the mounts on the box were were gilt bronze, and it it was on some. I think it was purple. It might have been blue silk velvet cloth, and it had been presented by the manufacturer Char- Charles Lancaster, who is a a, a, a London gunmaker, mm-hmm. to Sir Garnet Wolsey, who was the foremost British soldier of the Victorian age. And he'd okay. clearly given him this to say, you know, how about um, giving us a contract for these Saganet? <laughs> you know, it, it, it was just like Sam Colt. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's very cool. And that's a neat uh, a neat connection uh, to make to compare him to Colt because folks over here are obviously very familiar with, with Sam's business savvy. <laughs> yeah. At the other end of the scale, a lady brought to me something which she described as a piece of rubbish. And I looked at it, and it was actually a wooden water bottle, canteen, as you you call them in in America. And I am absolutely certain that it dated from the Napoleonic Wars. And when you think about the potential survivability of these things, because they were wood, they were probably thrown on the fire when they were broken, um, you, you would have got another one from the quartermaster. And the, any surplus ones tended to be sold off after wars. Sure. So th- this, th- this was such a rare survivor. And you wondered whether or not this had walked its way around Spain with one of Wellington's soldiers. And on a really hot day, he was going, oh, that's better. Ooh, yes, <laughs> and that to me was just so interesting. And this lady said, I don't know why you're so interested in it. I was going to throw it on the fire. Oh, my goodness. I, I had to speak very sharply to her and tell her wow. to really preserve it. Yeah. But I think I, I think it has gone into the National Army Museum because there's so very few of them about. Yeah. That's the same way here, same time period. You mentioned, you know, Napoleonic time period. So there'll be, you know, War of 1812 era over here. And and uh, I happened to be, oh gosh, it was almost a year ago now. There's a big antique arms show in Las Vegas. Uh, and I was out there with a colleague and and he was stopped at a table and enamored by some uh, some 1812 era wooden canteens that had soldiers' names and units on them. Mm. Um, and it's just... 
uh, just perfect stuff um, that yes. other people would yeah. walk right past, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. so if you, you should, you, you should never ignore things that appear to be mundane because generally they're quite important. Yeah. That's my experience. And, you know, and it's kind of funny that if she thought it was was rubbish and she was going to th- throw it on the fire, makes you wonder why she thought to bring that piece to the roadshow anyway, you know? I think she might have brought it simply to get through the gates so that um, <laughs> she could be part of the experience. A lot of people bring bring things that they think, oh, I'd like I'd like to go to that um, red show filming today. What have I got? Oh, I've got this pen knife. I'll take that. Right. Okay. See, when, when my <laughs> wife and I went, we we made sure to think long and hard. We're like, all right, what's something that we think is actually worthwhile? You know. So, mm. but but yeah. we're we're antique bugs anyway, and so. Yeah. You know, yes. we're, we're yeah. a little more conscious with that. I want to go back to the the Lancaster four barrel. The person who brought that, did they, how did they acquire it? And, you know, did, I mean, obviously by its appearance, they knew it was something special, but, you know, were, were they clued into exactly what they had or did you have to give kind of a complete education on that for them? I think they had some concept that it was important. I'm just trying to, Rack my brains. I think there was some very distant family connection with the general, okay. probably three generations ago, and his distant descendants thought that this was an important thing. Um, it, ca- it came into Winchester, which is in the uh, southern part of uh, the UK, when, when we were doing the roadshow from Winchester Cathedral. And I have to say, it was the best ever thing that I think I've ever seen on on, on the road show. With, wow. with one possible exception, I may have seen a Patterson cult. I could not be sure whether it was a real one. But it had every, every look that it might have done. And it's, it certainly wasn't an aged-up Italian modern replica. It, uh-huh. it was old. That's... But I couldn't be sure. And I, w- I would want it to be looked at by someone who had seen several Patterson Colts and really had a feel for them. I'd only ever seen one before, and that was at a great distance and a very long time ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's interesting you brought that gun up because in in me doing my background research on you so that I was as prepared as I could be, uh, I, I spent some time on the Roadshow's website looking for video clips just with you in them. And so, and obviously over such a long career with them, there's quite a few, but I actually honed in on that Patterson clip because right. I, I, lo- I love early Colts as well, I, I, you know, and I think they're absolutely fascinating. And, and uh, to see one over there, uh, is is interesting. It's they're rare enough over here, but to come across one uh, yes. over there was really really neat. They're certainly very well documented, and to find one that had just come out of the woodwork was um, right. Re- really, v- very odd, and that makes me slightly suspicious. I <laughs> I, I think um, there was one that was found in the house of an elderly lady in the north part of the country that was then sold for, I think it made a quarter of a million pounds. It was pretty wow. special. Wow. And it, it, was, it was worth more than her house was worth. <laughs> and, and she had struggled in poverty for all her life. Oh, my goodness. And to think she had something right there that could have solved all yes. that. My goodness. Yes. That is something. 
Now, I have had a couple guests on the show from the Royal Armories in Leeds. Um, and of course, you have a connection there as being one of only seven of their honorary historical consultants. So tell us what what exactly is an honorary historic consultant and how did you find yourself in such esteemed company? I think that I was made an honorary historical consultant because I, I'd done quite a bit of work with the Royal Armouries and particularly, again, there's a roadshow connection here. We had a lady turn up with a pair of pistols that belonged to General John Jacob, who was an Indian Army officer who made a projectile, which is an explosive projectile, and um, he, he was gen generally into his firearms. And the, the Royal Armouries had got a lot of his pistols, and I think one of his rifles. And I managed to obtain a very long-term loan for the Armouries of these pistols, and they're, they're, on, they're on display. And I think that um, the then master of the Armouries thought, yes, we'll have you. <laughs> and uh, that, 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 that's why I was given this honorary position. And I'm really there if they want any advice. Mm -hmm. And it, it's quite useful. It, it doesn't get you into places. You know, I can say <laughs> uh, any chance of looking at the so-and-so exhibition before it starts. Sure. It, 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 it's, it's one of those symbiotic relationships that uh, if they want my help, I'm very happy to give it. And also, if I want to go and look in the reserve collection or something like that, at something, yeah. um, that, that I can generally get in. I'm, I'm only two hours away. And okay. So consequently, it, it's really quite handy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's and I have found it in my career with museums as well that it's it's not what you know, it's who you know. And and I have had the uh, esteemed privilege of going behind the scenes in, in a lot of different collections uh, that that otherwise I, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do. And yeah, but one one day I, I plan on calling in uh, a favor over there at the Royal Armouries and and trying to see the background, whether it's uh, with Jonathan Ferguson or Lisa Trainer or someone along those lines. I, 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 know, I know Jonathan and Lisa very well. They are excellent people. And, yes. Uh, if, if ever you're going to be over there, let me know. And uh, Perhaps we could meet up. That would be great. We'll, you know, we'll have to have to make a big meeting of it. We'll get the four of us together. We'll drag Jonathan I, and Lisa I, I, along as well. I, I think that would that would be very good. I'd be very very pleased to uh, show you my collection as well. I would love to see it. <laughs> and and you have amassed uh, quite quite a, a wonderful collection um, over the years. And I know you've. Um, you've seen and had a number of uh, impressive pieces in your hands over the years through all your your different hats that you've worn. But I'm curious to know, you know, what are what are a couple of the the really impressive key pieces or key moments or experiences that you've had in your career? You know, what what sticks out as the the feathers in your cap? I, th I thought long and hard about this, Logan, and it's a, <laughs> a ferociously difficult question to answer. It's like uh, asking sorry, so someone. I, it's like asking someone if they have a favorite kid. It's 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 a hard one yes. to answer. But at the end of the day, they do have a favorite kid. <laughs> they do indeed. Yeah, I I split um, it into three areas, if you like. Okay. And what, one thing which I, I'm very proud of was that I 
was made the president of the Muzzle Loaders Association of Great Britain. Now, that again is an honorary position. Um, I'm wheeled out to say something, or if they want advice, I'm I'm there. But mm-hmm. just to be president of an association which does nothing other than shoot guns which you load from the front end, then right. you know, that, that, that suits me very well. I, I'm, I'm really very honoured by that. Uh-huh. The next one, we're back to the Royal Armouries again. I was in the reserve collections and I looked at this gun. I thought, I know what that is. And it was a muzzle-loading gun that belonged to King Henry VIII. Oh, wow. Was, was uh, really the first English monarch to own a firearm. And uh, okay. he, he, he really got England starting to adopt firearms. And, and in fact, the Venetian ambassador, writing uh, one of his dispatches back to Venice, said, uh, his majesty has enough guns to conquer hell. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great phrase. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought that was really good. Yeah. Um, anyhow, I looked at this and I, I, I said to whoever was uh, looking after me, may I, may I pick this up? And I, we, we, we put the white gloves on and uh, all of the usual protective things that you, you would do with an artifact that was old as that. And I was actually able to put it into my shoulder and my cheek had been on the same cheek piece on the stock as His Majesty's had. Wow. That's very I, cool. Yeah, I, uh, presumably somewhere there's a sort of mixture of our DNA. (laughs) (laughs) That is really, really cool. There's there's a firearm in the the NRA Museum collection where I worked uh, that was a piece that was owned by Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, and and it too has a, has a velvet cheek piece on it, you know, uh, and and I've had the opportunity to hold and shoulder that as well. So for better or worse, maybe Bonaparte and I are are, are mingling the DNA there as well. As long as I don't end up uh, exiled on Elba, I think I'll be okay. <laughs> well, you, you could always ask for me to be in charge of your guard, and we'd we'd have a good time. Hey, there you go. There's worse ways yeah. to spend some time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and my my last one is really a hunting anecdote. Okay, I was out with two friends of mine, and we we were shooting. Well, really, really, what whatever came around over over gun dogs mm-hmm. with flintlock guns. Very and cool. I was using a gun made by H.W. Mortimer, who is a fairly uh, well-respected English gunmaker. He was gunmaker in order to uh, King George III. And there was a a woodcock. I I think in the States you call them timber doodles. I'm not certain. Okay. There was a woodcock got up, and they are very difficult birds to shoot because they jink. Okay, and I clearly got onto this bird very quickly before it had chance to start jinking, and I fired. And there's this great white cloud, and just on the side of it, there was this little brown thing fell away. 
I've hit it. I've hit it, and there's nobody more surprised than me. I can tell you. <laughs> uh, and I couldn't find it. Oh no! And the 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 other guys were saying, "Oh, you've missed it. Oh, you've missed it. You didn't stand a chance of hitting it." Uh-huh. And I said, "Right, right. Bring me the best nosed dog that we have today." And uh, this very very venerable um, gun dog was brought up, and I said to the dog, "Biscuits for life if you find it." <laughs> he went into the thick, rummaged around in there. He was there for quite a long time and then walked out with it in his mouth. Oh, that's so and, cool. And to shoot a woodcock, one of the, the hardest flying targets, in a proper hunting scenario with a gun made in 1824, then I, I really wonder when the last person in... Great Britain shot a woodcock with a flintlock. You're probably the only one alive, you know? Could be. Could be. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah, you know, you're right there. Wing shooting is, is hard enough as it is trying to get the lead right, but let alone oh, yeah. not only having to get the lead right, but also having to deal with the slight delay of ignition with the flintlock. I mean, that just adds so much more complexity to the situation. Yes, I, I was fortunate in, in this instance in that... The delay didn't really matter because the bird was going away. Ah, okay. <laughs> and I, 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 th- I think that contributed to it. And what, what really pleased me was these two other chaps I was shooting with, um, one, one of whom is about the nearest thing I have to a brother and a very great friend, and uh, the, the other one is a professional colleague. colleague. They're, they're very much better shots than me. And they spent hours after that sitting around <laughs> waiting to see whether they could shoot a woodcock <laughs> and you know what they never have no kidding <laughs> that's cool well those those are three very cool things and and uh, show uh, by their difference just how wide of, of a breadth of of an amazing career that you've had uh, one thing that I want to ask you about, and, and this is one I didn't prep you on, so I'm going to spring it on you because I just oh, became aware of it recently. Uh, the, the venerable gunmaker Holland and Holland, which, of course, has been owned by Chanel, oddly enough, for a number of years, yes. has recently been acquired by Beretta, uh, which, of course, is the oldest gunmaker in the world. And I'm yeah. curious, I have my own thoughts, but what are your thoughts on, on that impressive British brand being purchased by an impressive Italian brand? I think that you have always found that English gun-making houses that produce the very high end of luxury guns will always be attractive to a luxury goods group, if you like. Mm -hmm. I I believe Purdy's are, or they used to be owned by the Vendôme group. Right. Um, Of course, Holland's, as you say, was Chanel. And if it means that these survive, then I'm all for it, because clearly there isn't very much of a market for a gun which costs um, upwards of uh, 70000 English pounds, which is quite a lot of money. It is, yeah. It's a lot of money. It is. If I I say the most expensive firearm that I own is probably worth about um, 2,500 pounds, and that puts it into its context. Right. 
Yeah, I could add up all the guns in my collection and it wouldn't equal what a new Holland in Holland would cost, you know. But I, I personally, I'm hopeful with them being owned by a, another firearms company again. That yeah, no, that's, a, that's a, very, a very good thing, I think. Yeah, I because anyone who has has watched Holland and Holland over the years, they've they've steered into a very weird world of fashion, and I, I think they've become they've become a clothing brand that also happens to make guns on the side, which for the longest time baffled me until I realized that they were owned by Chanel, and then it made a little more sense. I didn't like it, <laughs> but it made a little more sense. So uh, I'm hopeful that that Beretta being their their new parent company will help steer them back to their firearm roots, if you will. Certainly. Um, I, I think that's a very perceptive um, comment. Um, funnily enough, my boss for the job I work at at the moment, his daughter worked for Holland's for oh. se several years in, in the clothing division before she went to be a journalist. Okay. Uh, so um, next time I see her, I'll have a word and see what see what the lowdown is. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Get the inside scoop. <laughs> Very cool. Well, we've spent a good deal of time talking about uh, shooting things. <laughs> and so let's shift from shooty things to pointy things and, and talk about bayonets and, and your upcoming book. Um, you know, bayonets are often today kind of seen as just accessories in the periphery. Uh, but of course, there were periods of time where the bayonet really changed how armies functioned and often led to them winning battles and, and wars. So talk to us a bit about uh, the the changing world of bayonets and, and what led you to going, you know what, we, we need a book on these. I... I got a lot of books on Ben. It's in my bookshelf just over there. But they're all catalogues. They sure. will say, this Bennett was used by Argentina, and then it will go through other nations and end with Zambia or a nation that starts with Z. Right. And they're, they're, they're excellent for collectors because they say, that's what you've got, and this is the first type, and that's very rare. Mm -hmm. What they don't do and what, what prompted me to make this um, approach to Osprey was that they didn't really deal with the history and the sort of little bits that come together to see how bayonets fit into the developmental part of history for military history. People take them for granted. They're a knife mm -hmm. that goes on the end of this gun. Right, they are. That's all you need to know. But they're, they're not. They're very. They're very much more subtle. And if you think of the way that an army was constituted in, say, sixteen forty-five, which is about the time when Bennett's came out, there is infantry troops. There are two distinct types, in 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 varying proportions, depending on what army it was. There were the sort of impact or shock troops with armed with pikes. And then they were troops who were missile troops called the shot who were armed with muskets. So the two had to work in concert. Mm -hmm. The pikemen guarded the musketeers whilst they were loading because it was quite a long process loading sure. a, mus a musket. And the musketeers could 
deal with any threats to the pikemen at some distance. So you've got the two working as a symbiotic relationship. Then by about the 1680s, when somebody had decided it was quite a good idea to put a pointed object on the end of a firearm, and I don't think it was derived from somebody just pushing a knife in. Uh I think it, it was probably a broken pike or something like that. It was probably the result of desperation and somebody just stuck that into the muzzle of their musket and Mm. suddenly thought, hang on, I've got (laughs) both a defensive and an offensive weapon here and that's that's how this developed. So the the plug bayonet, which you stuffed into the muzzle and you couldn't couldn't fire the gun with it in there, it would be highly dangerous. Yeah. Um, they started to be more common. And by the 1680s or thereabouts, you start to see them beginning to proliferate. They were very useful for troops like dragoons, who were really mounted infantry. They could protect themselves with that. They didn't need a whole load of pikemen. So they could have that mobility of their horses. And yet, if they were attacked to us, they were dismounted or, att- or attacked by cavalry, they could then use their plug bayonets to protect themselves. Then by about 1700, you see the infantry soldier losing that distinction of either being a pikeman or a musketeer Mm -hmm. and being a soldier armed with a flintlock musket and a socket bayonet. And all armies looked exactly like that. The only thing that differentiated them was the colour of their coats. Right. So, so, so you, you have changed the character of an army. And from, shall we say, about 1700 to about 1840, the socket bayonets and musket-armed infantrymen was, was universal. Mm-hmm. And, and consequently, you, you, get, you get the ability for a formation that's efficient to disorder its enemy with a couple of sharp volleys, fix its bayonets, and then charge over a relatively short distance, so shall we say 100, 200 yards, before they could reload. And it's very clear that there were very few bayonet fights because one side generally ran away if they had any sense. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very interesting to read the comments of an army surgeon who was called... Um, I think he was called Major Guthrie. And he said, normally one side will run away from the other, discretion being the better part of valour. <laughs> that's good. If, I if, like that. And if you think about it, that's dead true. If you are part of a formation that's just been disordered by several really good volleys or by British rolling platoon fire, you're not going to stand around with a whole load of screaming lunatics running at you with very long and sharp pointed things on the end of their guns. You're going to run away. Right. Yeah. Fight or flight kicks in and flight takes over. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then the danger comes that from about 1840, the bayonet has acquired such a reputation that commanders think that it's invincible. Right. And from then till about the end of the First World War, you start to see 
horrific casualties caused by bayonet charges. Mm-hmm. Um, to give an example, a uh, Piggott's charge at Gettysburg. Yes. That was a, that was a terribly long run-up. And the, the, the Pickett's division were just shot to bits before they'd even got there. Yeah, yeah, they, they had no chance. Because, yeah, but they, they had this sort of uh, misguided um, belief that if you attack a man with... Send a man to attack somebody with a bayonet, he's invincible. Right. Uh, Fra- Franco-Prussian War. Uh, there were a lot of Prussian units were really shot, shot up, probably losing, um, you know, sort of a third of their effective strength in, in, in minutes mm-hmm. by uh, French soldiers armed with chassepots at long range because the Prussians were trying to close with them. Right. And, and, and it... it, it the the ultimate is the uh, senseless slaughter in the First World War, where time and time again people were sent over the top with bayonets, yeah. and a, a bayonet against a machine gun isn't a lot of good. No, not at all, <laughs> not at all. So, so it, it, it then when people really worked out that um, it's not such a good good idea to mount mass bayonet attacks, but a soldier armed with a bayonet. Is quite useful in certain tactical situations. It might be whereby a quick charge with bayonets would push an enemy off a feature or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I think the last bayonet charge that the British Army did en masse, which used something more than a couple of individuals, that there was um, a company attack on Mount Tumbledown in the Falklands War in 1982 oh, by wow. the Scots Guards who charged some Argentinians. And wow. the, the company commander fighting with Argentinians on the summits, summit of Mount Tumbledown, he actually broke his bayonet. Oh. And, and there, there is a really, well, I think, very cool connection here because one of the platoon commanders, the lieutenants, who helped to lead this charge was a former colleague of mine. Oh, no kidding. Yep. Wow. Small world, right? (laughs) Alistair describes the event as the most scary thing he's ever done. I bet. My goodness. Got a bayonet charge in the 1980s. That's just... Uh, yes. You, you go, wait, say that again? You know, <laughs> that's yeah. just, you do not think of that, you know? Well, I, I have to say, as a young soldier in the um, 1970s, we used to do bayonet drill. Really? Yeah. Uh, on on a, a, a Wednesday night, I, I, I was in your equivalent of the National Guard. We used to turn up to our drill hall on a Wednesday night. And if there was nothing else much happening, we used to be lined up, have bayonets put on our Belgian self-loading rifles, the the SLR that the British uh, adopted. It was a very good rifle. I like that. I felt safe with it. Uh-huh. Well, that's uh, important. And, <laughs> and, and and we would stand opposing each other, doing ah and high port and butt smash, and then we would be sent outside to the tank park where there was a whole load of hanging dummies and we were encouraged to charge them and scream and shout as much as you pleased. I have to say, you get a feeling of invulnerability when you do that. Right. Wow. That's wild. Yeah, I, I, 
never done anything like that. So that's that's interesting to to think. And I I bet the the screaming and hooting and hollering makes all the difference in the world. You know, oh, yes, he makes the other side <laughs> run away, and you and you feel a hell of a lot better for doing it. Right. Absolutely. We we, we, we did have an injury with a bayonet on on one night when the. Somebody hadn't quite put it properly on the end of his rifle when he fixes, and he thrust out, and it flew off and stuck in some other chap's foot. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> they, 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 they had to call for the medical orderly and all kinds of things. Oh my gosh! The, the, the commanding officer took the view after that. I think enough's enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how about that? There are, in the firearms world, there are a lot of myths and misconceptions that get thrown around about certain guns and, and this and that. Um, but the same is true for bayonets. There's a lot of things that people don't understand or, you know, it's stories that get told over and over and over until they become supposed truths. So are, are there some bayonet myths and misconceptions that you'd like to dispel? Yeah, I, I, I think that there are. Um, this is a German First World War Mauser, known as the butcher knife bayonet. Right. And you can see there's that hollow groove on it. And people say, oh, that's there to allow the blood to flow down when you stick it in. Right. Well, it's not. It's, <laughs> it's, there to, it's there to lighten the bayonet without it losing its strength. If you grind two grooves into it, it becomes very, very rigid mm -hmm. and uh, it, it, it lines it off. You've probably lost several ounces of weight from that, which is all counts when you're an infantryman who's got to walk around with it. Absolutely. Ounces make pounds and pounds make pain. They do. They do. <laughs> um, also, you, you get a lot of bayonets. Um, certainly in the German army in the around about the First World War, about 6% of them were made with a saw on the back. Mm -hmm. And and again, people say, oh, they're to inflict horrible wounds. Um, well, actually, if you have a saw on there, it's going to make it less effective as a penetrator. Right. What the saw was there for was that you turned it upside down and you could saw things with it. Right. Becomes multi-purpose. Yes. There, there's this, always this concept of making a bayonet do something else as well. And... Uh, I think the funniest one that, that absolutely cracked me up when I when I read about it was the trials of the, the U.S. trowel bayonet in the 1870s. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I, I can't believe that General Sherman himself actually said these are really good. You know, you know a, yeah. a, a man I've all, I've always admired for his tactical ability and um, his his wisdom and wit, and he thought he thought that. Putting a spade on the end of a gun was a good idea. Right. Yeah, the, the <laughs> two that really get me are, one, the, the trowel bayonet, and two, uh, the, uh, uh, the, oh my gosh, now I'm blanking on the exact word that I need to use, but the the cleaning rod bayonet, the rod, that's as simple as that, oh, the yeah, rod the, bayonet the, on the Springfield 03. The, 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 rod the rod bayonet was dreadful. I've got yeah. a trapdoor Springfield um, 4570 that's got a rod bayonet on it. It's appalling. Yeah. You, you just wouldn't want to fight anybody armed with it. I'd run away. Yeah. Now it's, you might as well just attack them with your cleaning rod because that's essentially what you were doing. Quite. <laughs> yes. 
Oh, do, do you know that um, Teddy Roosevelt got the uh, Springfield Rod Bayonet stopped? Yep. Yep. There's that nope. very fa- fa- famous letter um, when he was sitting in the White House and there was some general expounding on how wonderful this Rod Bayonet was. And he sort of scratched his chin and thought, mm, I don't really think so. So he apparently called the Marine Sentry and said, Len- lend me your rifle, son. And he got a. <laughs> A Craig Jorgensen, which has got a very nice, um, very handy knife knife bayonet on it. And he made a couple of passes at the general with his rod bayonet and broke it in half. <laughs> and uh, funnily enough, about six months after that, <laughs> Springfield had the M1905 sword bayonet on it, which yep. was a very good bayonet. But in terms of the tactical situation uh, in the First World War, it was, it was too long for trench fighting. But it was a good bayonet, yeah, and certainly cut cut down, um, and and then purpose built. They they were excellent bayonets when used on the Garand. Yes, yes, very good bayonets, and and they, it's it's one of those things from a collector's standpoint uh, that that make some of these uh, adaptations and failures so incredibly popular. You know, the, the rod bayonet is, is an abject failure, but now to, to find an O3 Springfield that's still got its original rod bayonet is, uh, you know, that's, that's a big plus for a collector or to find one of the O5 bayonets that didn't get cut down, uh, for the grand, you know, you'll pay hundreds of dollars, uh, for yes. those, uh, you know, so it's yeah. it's interesting the adaptation and what does and does not become collectible out of that. <laughs> and I, I, I think one myth that has grown up from the sawbanked bayonet was that any German soldier who was caught with one was summarily executed. I've heard that. And yeah, I, I, I just I just simply don't believe it. That there's you you would have thought that. West, you might you might not want to shout about what you've done. Word would have got round that uh, we caught these Germans with uh, saw bayonets and we shot them immediately. And I think that comes from a passage in All Quiet on the Western Front by Erich Maria Remark, okay. who wrote it in 1922, I think it was. And he was referring to German soldiers who've been caught with these things who are executed summarily in horrible ways, but there's no evidence. And I, okay. I think beca- because All Quiet on the Western Front was such a great seller, people yeah. read it and they believed it. Right. But that's my theory. That's in the book. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> for another theory, I'm curious, the, the supposed blood groove on the bayonet do do we have any idea? Do you know where that myth came from? No, I I think it's just one of those um, ideas that somebody looked at it and they thought, "What's that for? Oh, it must be to let the blood out." Right. <laughs> and there are enough people that go, "Oh, that makes sense," and it grows legs and walks on for decades. Uh, I- uh, absolutely, and people are bloodthirsty. They they like things like that. They think, "Ooh, yeah, that's, a, ooh, that's the blood out." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, now, so as we wrap up, uh, there's one final question, um, and I ask everybody on the show, and I'm curious to know what firearms designer or bayonet designer from history would you most want to meet, and why? 
It would have to be Sam Colt. Yeah? Absolutely. I, I've always really been interested in um, Sam Colt. I, I own a few Colts myself. Uh-huh. And I, I think I would want to meet him because he didn't invent the revolver, but he perfected it. And then right. having perfected it, he marketed it. Yes. We go, we, 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 we go back to the Patterson, which we've already spoken of. I am not rich enough to own a real one, I'm afraid. So <laughs> you I, and me I, both. I, I, are you quite? I, I have to say that I have got a very good Italian copy of a number five Texas model with the loading lever. Uh-huh. And I, I have to say that that is one of the favourite firearms that, that I own. I, I sometimes of an evening just sit and think, you know, that, that, that was probably the most important development in firearms history. Because, yeah. because it, sh- it showed the world that repeating firearms were a practicality. And, yes. Uh, every, everything goes back to that. Yeah. So I, I, I would very much like, like, like to have met Sam Colt. In, in terms of bayonet designers, the bayonet designer that I would really like to meet and give a piece of my mind to... Is the person who designed that appalling bayonet for the British SA-80 rifle. Have you seen one? You know, I don't know that I have, and, and I'm sure it's in Jonathan Ferguson's upcoming book uh, that has the SA-80 in it, but I haven't got the book yet because it's not out. So so please do tell, what what uh, what is the bayonet and what is the issue? The, the, the bayonet has a Bowie knife blade and a sort of strange hollow socket. The blade's set to one side of the socket. Okay. And the socket the socket goes over the flash hide of the rifle. Okay. Why you you would want to put a bayonet on a rifle that's about that long, I've no idea. <laughs> yeah, a bayonet on a bullpup is uh, yeah. odd at best. I, I, I'm told it, it, it cost over a million pounds to develop, and quite frankly... I could have done a better job on the back of a cigarette packet. Right. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it, it, they're, they're also, their investment cast into ceramics. And consequently, certainly, they, they were, the one I was issued with was very, very brittle because within about a week of it being issued to me, I broke it. No kidding. I dropped, I dropped it on the concrete floor when I was going out the armory and the end snapped off. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> The, squ- the squadron quartermaster sergeant was very cross. He said, you broke that, sir. You'll have to pay for it. I said, can't you just push it under the uh, under the carpet, as it were? Right. I, I didn't like the SA-80 either. W- within uh, days, I'd broken mine as well. I'm careful with firearms. You know, I sort of respect them, but right. it's I, I can only describe it as a piece of tin and plastic rubbish. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Quite, quite. Why we didn't see sense and either go for a Kalashnikov made under license or your excellent M16 under license. Mm-hmm. The, the only thing I would say about the M16 is I'm a bit dubious about a rifle that has to have a bolt forward assist thing on it. Well, and so was Eugene Stoner. He wasn't keen on it either, you know. That was yeah. uh, why why would yes. you want to force something into the chamber that doesn't want to go, you know? Yes. Um so yeah, yeah you're but, absolutely but, right. It doesn't make sense. That, uh, uh, other than that, when when I fired an M16 or 
equivalent of it. I, I, I've liked it. I thought it was a good rifle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we I quite, you know we call them adult I Legos quite, over here because they're just so ad- adaptable and, and changeable. You know, <laughs> well, there's all kinds of bells and whistles on them these days, aren't there? Oh, Rails yes. and torches, you name it. Yeah, I have to say I'm a bit more traditionalist in my uh, taste of firearms, and really my collection, which well, it's 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 done by the end of the First World War. Okay, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> You know, you like what you like, and yeah, quite quite, and you you like what you're interested in. And funnily enough, the earliest firearm that I have in my collection is an American Hall. Ooh, now is it in flintlock or has it been converted to percussion? It's it's a converted one. Okay, that 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 doesn't particularly bother me. Um, I might buy a flintlock. I've got a Hall. Um, carbine as well, which I I bought fairly recently. I think it was last year from a, an auction, and uh, that's very, that's very interesting. I, I fired them both, and cool. I have to say, I'm amazed by the amount of gas that comes out. Of it. <laughs> but but you, you know what? I I I got in a, fo- in a fox foxhole on a, a military range and firing at a human. Size. It was. It's known as a figure eleven target. It's about the same size as a, a man standing there. Mm-hmm. At a hundred yards, I could hit it seven, eight times out of ten. At two hundred yards, the hit rate hadn't diminished very much, and the speed of loading was. Yeah. I was getting something like about eight, eight to ten shots a minute off easily, comfortably taking careful aim right. and. If you think that you were being attacked by a mass formation, then then they would have been in some very serious problems. Yeah, yeah, the so hall rifle I, I, fascinates me. It, it, it does me as well. Yeah, yeah, hall. I mean, and I, I used to live only about thirty minutes from Harper's Ferry, and so I oh, would right. yes. spend a good bit of time going there. And you know, hall was. Paul was every bit uh, an engineer and a machinist and a tinkerer as as he was a gunsmith, and uh, he, yes. he he doesn't really get his due uh, in in the the firearms scene. And unfortunately, there's there's nothing left of any of his buildings uh, there at Harper's Fair. I mean, there's very few left anyway, but uh, his particular rifle works is is long gone, and it's it's a shame yes. because I would love to be able to just just go and stand where he stood and. Uh, it just the the precision that he had things done with um, was just remarkable and just fantastic. I would love to own a hall one day. <laughs> well, well, I, I hope you do. I, I, I've enjoyed both of mine, and I've actually fired mine with just the uh, with with just the breech block as a pistol. Yes. Yes, but I, I have to. I, I have to say it was exciting, and I'm very glad I wore gloves. <laughs> yeah, I would love to do that as well because I've heard stories, uh, you know, like of guys doing it like on the Texas frontier and stuff, using them. Just it, it, as the it was it was Sam Chamberlain um, in the um, Mexican War who s- stood off a whole load of Mexicans who were intent on doing a mischief. They were all armed with knives. I think he'd gone down to the cantina for a few beers after a hard day. And uh, all these um, locals didn't like the look of him. They all produced knives. But because he'd got the only firearm, or apparently the only firearm, they right. all ran away. Yeah. But I, I, just, I just think that's a fantastic story. 
It is. Uh, it's, you know, don't don't bring a knife to a gunfight, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, Bill, I, I really appreciate you spending some time on here. And, you know, it, it's been great. We've talked about, you know, mixing DNA with Henry VIII and, and <laughs> blood grooves and uh, all sorts of great stuff and and the road show and just, just awesome stuff. And I, again, I, I really appreciate it. And I'm really looking forward to the new Bayonet book coming out again. That's uh, coming out on April 15th from Osprey publishing. There'll be a link to, to Osprey below. So I encourage everybody to, to pick up a copy when it comes out. Um, so once again, Bill Harriman, thank you for coming on the high caliber history podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the High Caliber History Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I enjoyed uh, taping it with uh, my guest, Bill Harriman. And I hope to see you here on the next episode of the show. And if you enjoyed it, again, remember that we are entirely viewer and listener supported. And so we'd appreciate you uh, considering making a donation over on our Patreon, which is going to be linked in the description below. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode.